This is our last episode before we take a little break for the Christmas holidays. We will be back on the 18th of January, so keep your ears peeled for that. In the meantime though, if you'd like to get your fix of red rum over the Christmas period, sign up to our Patreon for exclusive full-length content with a regular episode released on the 1st of the month and a themed episode released on the 15th. For now, Here's a trailer for our first Red Rum Patreon episode. The jogger noticed what looked like a lump of clothing in the centre of the lot. As he approached it, he realised it was in fact the naked body of a young woman. She was lying face up and a bra was tied around her neck. She had been brutally beaten, with the root of her nose completely flattened, and a number of teeth were loose or missing. Thank you to William Turner for his brilliant pronunciations and insight for this episode. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Yasuo was one of the men making his way onto the train. He carried three bags of liquid sarin, disguised in packages that were made to look like lunchboxes or bottled drinks. As Yasuo changed trains, he used the top of his umbrella to pierce the packages and release the sarin. The liquid seeped all over the floor, and caused immediate distress as people began to cough and choke. More and more people were struggling to breathe, and violently clutched at their throats and chests. People quickly started to fall forward and slump onto one another, becoming unconscious. Even if passengers managed to make it off of the train carriage, the hallways and entrances began to fill with the toxin, and commuters fell about gasping for air, blood gushing from their noses and mouths. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 19, Ulma. This episode focuses on a Japanese cult that spanned Russia, the US and beyond. In Japanese, the way you say names is that the first name and the last name are the other way round. So Shoko Asahara would become Asahara Shoko. In this episode, I'll be talking about people using their first names or the traditional way of reversing first and last names. Asahara Shoko was born on the 2nd of March 1955 in remote southern Japan. He was born into a large family who made their living making tatami mats, a kind of flooring material made with woven soft rush straw. The profit on this kind of work was minimal and the family of nine struggled to make ends meet. Shoko had been born with severe visual impairment so attended a school specifically to support him. However, he didn't do well at school 
and reacted to his surroundings by becoming a bit of a bully. He wasn't able to get the grades he needed to gain a place at university, so decided to study acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine before, in 1981, becoming convicted of prescribing pharmaceuticals without a license. He eventually turned his focus onto New Age philosophy, something we talk about a bit more on our Patreon Cults episode. In February of 1984, Shoko started a yoga group where he claimed that through religious practice, his students would be able to levitate just like he could. By 1987, Shoko had decided to make his way onto a pilgrimage through the southern side of the Himalayas. He visited Buddhist monasteries, practiced yoga, and worked towards a mindset of, quote, supreme spiritual realization and enlightenment, unquote. Shoko claimed that during this pilgrimage, he was given supernatural powers. Once Shoko returned to Japan, he renamed his yoga group to Alma Shinrikyo, which translates to Doctrine of the Absolute Truth, where he claimed his goal became happiness for all. He preached the belief that spiritualism should overtake materialism and that true religion was actually extremely scientific. This made the group attractive to many elite graduates, doctors and even scientists. Unlike the rest of the group, Shoko himself had numerous lovers alongside his wife and had fathered 15 children. By 1990, Shoko led some of his followers to run for upper house elections so that they could start to infiltrate and have influence in Japanese society. The 25 chosen followers, including Shoko himself, stood for election wearing white matching clothing and played music for the crowds. After all of Alma's candidates were unsuccessful, Shoko started to feel a bitterness towards the public and began to plan his revenge. By this point, he was starting to get quite a following. Shoko made a subgroup he called the New Followers Agency, who would trawl elite university campuses, declaring Shoko to be the first enlightened one since Buddha. They would target those who were studying for high-pressured careers and promised that if they joined Alma, they would be given a more meaningful life. This also meant that many of the Alma followers had majored in medicine or engineering and brought these expertise to the group. They also recruited many military personnel, police officers and technology experts. Over the next few years, Alma broadcast their messages worldwide with particular focus on Russian radio where they recruited a huge number of followers. Some of the Alma followers claimed that they had initially joined the group in order to practice yoga and meditation, but quickly came to condone many of the unconventional and increasingly cruel activities of the larger group. By 1989, Shoko's yoga group had been given the official status of a religious corporation. Over the next six years, 
Shoko operated many electronic businesses and restaurants under the Alma name. He told all members joining Alma that they had to sign their estates over to the group and charged extortionate amounts of money for specific rituals, some of which involved using Shoko's hair. Others used his bathwater. In 1988, one group member took part in a blood initiation in which he paid over £6,000 or $8,000 to drink Shoko's blood. Shoko sold what he deemed as necessary religious training headgear that allowed the wearer's brainwaves to sync up with his brainwaves. It cost $10,000 per month. Shoko and the Alma Group made an unbelievable amount of money from legit businesses, including restaurants, gyms, dating agencies, and even a babysitting firm. They also made and sold illegal drugs. At one point, the Japanese government estimated that Alma had around $1 billion in assets, as well as a helicopter, gold bars, and boats. Over this time, the group had become increasingly violent. They would willingly and easily kidnap, injure, and even kill their own members. It was one late evening in 1989 that 21-year-old Toguchi Shuji, a follower of Alma, decided to flee the group. Shuji had witnessed the murder of another member of the group by some other cult members on Shoko's orders. When he learnt that Shuji wanted to leave Alma, Shoko ordered four of his followers to kill Shuji in a so-called mercy killing. Shoko thought that if Shuji left the group, he would escape to the police and tell them of the murder. Three cult members held Shuji down, whilst another tied a rope around his neck and strangled him to death. A man called Sakamoto Sutsumi who was known as an anti-cult lawyer, learned of Shuji's death and began working on bringing down the cult. He strongly believed that members of the Alma were lured in by deception and were being manipulated to stay by way of threats. Sutsumi also believed that religious items were being marked up and sold at a much higher cost than they were worth, practically draining all assets of some members. The parents of some of the Alma members had sought Satsumi's help in trying to persuade their adult children to leave Alma. As part of his work focusing on Shoko in particular, Satsumi managed to get a sample of Shoko's blood, which he then submitted to be tested for the quote, special power that he claimed to possess. The results of the blood test found nothing out of the ordinary. Shoko knew that if those results became general public knowledge, it would likely ruin the reputation Alma had created thus far. It was also reported that Satsumi was working to help inside members of Alma who wanted to leave. In the early hours of November 4th, 1989, six Alma members acting under instruction from Shoko crept across the frosty grass outside of Satsumi's family home. One of the six members, a man named Satoru, 
was a karate practitioner and Shoko's personal bodyguard. All six of the group quietly made their way round to the back of the house and walked into the home through an unlocked back door. Once inside, the group made their way upstairs, being careful not to wake the sleeping Satsumi or his wife Satuko. Once inside the bedroom, a violent attack began on the husband and wife. Satsumi was hit on the head with a hammer, rendering him unconscious. Satoru then used his karate skills to strike Tsutsumi in the jaw several times, before injecting both him and his wife with potassium chloride. Satoru placed his knee on Satuko and held her down, whilst another member of the group strangled her to death. They also injected the couple's 14-month-old son with potassium chloride, which killed him almost instantly. Immediately following the attack, the group cleaned up the crime scene and loaded the bodies into their car. They wanted to make it seem as though the family had simply disappeared, so that subsequent investigations wouldn't focus on Alma. The six Alma members then smashed the family's teeth out to prevent identification and placed their bodies in steel drums which they buried in separate rural locations. Satsumi's mother, Sachio, spent the next six years waiting in hope for the return of her family. She even enrolled her grandson in kindergarten. But at 6am some six years later, the horrifying truth would be revealed. Over 1,000 police officers searched three remote areas of Japan's main island towards the sea of Japan coast. It was there, in the mountains of Joetsu City, that they recovered the remains of the family of three. By 1992, Shoko had written and published a book claiming he was Christ and told his followers he was Japan's only fully enlightened master. He also began preaching that the apocalypse was coming and that the United States would start this by waging World War III with Japan. He claimed only Alma followers would survive and that the end of the world for everyone else would be in 1996. The Alma group's desire to experiment and punish increased over the next few years and in June of 1993, a number of the group were involved in biological assaults. One incident saw them release anthrax spores onto the streets in Tokyo. The spores caused a foul smell. The anthrax produced two toxins, one called lethal toxin and one called edema toxin. These toxins could then cause damage to many types of cells, but the way in which they affect the blood and lymph vessels can make anthrax lethal because it damages various types of cells in the body. Inhaling the anthrax spores can cause a fever and chills, shortness of breath, confusion, dizziness, coughing, vomiting, stomach pains and headaches. The anthrax poisoning in June of 1993 wasn't fatal to any human beings, but it did cause the death of some small animals, birds, pets and plants. Alma also collected Ebola virus samples 
which they then spread around US military bases, but with no significant consequences. This continued failure to kill many and cause mass panic through biological attacks forced Alma to transition to using chemical weapons. In June of 1994, a cult member called Yasuo attempted to use a nerve gas called sarin. Sarin was originally developed by the Nazi regime in Germany. Exposure to the gas would cause a variety of symptoms, which could range from a runny nose or tightness in the chest, to seizures, paralysis and in some cases death. The gas was found to render breathing muscles unusable and eventually cause death by asphyxiation. The antidote for sarin gas is atropine and praladoxine chloride, but the antidote must be given to the affected person within minutes, or sometimes, dependent on the concentration, up to a maximum of three hours. Shoko decided to use the sarin gas on an enemy of his, the leader of one of Japan's most popular new religions. Shoko told a number of his followers, including Nimi Tomomitsu, who had joined Alma back in 1986, to prepare for the attack. The group rigged a device to spray liquid sarin, whilst an event organised by the new religious leader was going on. However, not long after the event had started, the liquid sarin gas began to leak out of the device and splashed onto Tomomitsu. A group member nearby noticed immediately and was able to quickly administer an antidote which, because done so instantly, saved Tomomitsu's nervous system from shutting down. The next event when sarin gas was used by Alma was when a number of group members, including Yasuo, attempted to kill some of the judges the group were involved in a dispute with. Yasuo had studied artificial intelligence at university and had become an Alma member a year after Tomomitsu in 1987. He, along with five other members of the group, gave themselves sarin antidotes and wore gas masks before loading 30 litres of sarin into a large truck and driving to a nearby residential area. At around 10.40pm, the group began diffusing the gas. The night was warm and a number of residents had left their windows wide open, meaning the gas seeped in quickly and easily. Just under half an hour later, Emergency services were called and asked to send an ambulance. By midnight, a mass disaster had been declared, though no one knew for sure exactly what the nature of the disaster was. By the early hours of the morning, 58 people had been taken to hospital and 7 people had died. Over the next few days and weeks, A total of 253 people needed medical care because of the attack. That same month, a group member called Toyoda worked with other Alma members to plan an attack on the Shinjuku subway station. At the time, the station was used by more than 1 million commuters a day and if successful, the attack could have killed between 20 and 25,000 people. 
The group left two bags at the station. One contained diluted sulfuric acid and the other sodium cyanide. One of the group members set one of the bags alight and quickly fled. When the fire ignited the other bag, the contents would mix and cyanide fumes would be released. If inhaled, the fumes could cause dizziness, headaches, loss of consciousness, difficulty in breathing, and eventual seizures, comas, or cardiac arrest. The cells are prevented from using oxygen, and at higher doses, death would occur in a matter of seconds. Fortunately, a man using the subway toilets had noticed the fire and quickly alerted some subway workers, who in turn extinguished the fire and ultimately stopped the subsequent cyanide attack from killing thousands of people. By this point, the Alma group had reported 40,000 members worldwide and ran offices in Japan, the US and Russia. In October of 1994, a member of Alma had chemically produced 100 to 200 grams of VX, otherwise known as Venomous Agent X. The chemical compound was both odourless and tasteless, with the like consistency of water. It was one of the best-known V-nerve agents and was first discovered at Porton Down in England during the early 1950s. We spoke about Porton Down in episode 10 of Red Rum, Georgie Markov, the Bulgarian defector. If you are exposed to VX, your nervous system and muscular system are disrupted to the point that you essentially become paralysed and your diaphragm stops working to such an extent that you will die by asphyxiation unless you have immediate treatment. Over the next three months, there were two more incidents of Alma members using VX to attack dissident members or enemies of the cult. The first was when a number of Alma followers spread VX onto a car door handle belonging to a lawyer who had been helping Alma members to escape the group. For reasons unknown to both Alma and authorities, the VX poisoning didn't work as planned and the lawyer survived. The second incident occurred at 7am on the 12th of December 1994. A 28-year-old man involved with Alma who was suspected of being a spy was approached by two Alma members posing as joggers. The joggers smeared VX on his neck as they passed before also injecting him with it. The victim then chased the joggers for a few seconds before he collapsed and was rushed to hospital. Once he arrived, he went into a coma, but was pronounced dead just 10 days later. The next attack was the biggest and most deadly. On the 20th of March 1995, the Monday morning rush hour was just beginning in Tokyo. The subway system at this time was always excruciatingly packed in the mornings, with people squashed up against windows and leaning on one another, with very little breathing space in between them. At 7.55am, five fresh-looking, smartly-dressed men made their way towards Tokyo's subway system. One of the men drove up to the station entrance, 
dropped the other four men off and drove away. Hayakawa, one of the members involved in the murder of lawyer Tsutsumi, gave the other men in the subway their orders, and one by one, they made their way onto separate trains. Each man carried a bag and an umbrella. Yasuo was one of the men making his way onto a train carriage. He carried three bags of liquid sarin disguised in packages that were made to look like lunchboxes, bottled drinks or bags. As Yasuo changed trains, he used the top of his umbrella to pierce the packages and release the sarin. The liquid seeped over the floor and immediately caused people to begin coughing and choking. More and more people were struggling to breathe and began violently clutching at their throats and chests. People quickly started to fall forwards and slump onto one another, becoming unconscious. Even if passengers managed to make it off of the train carriage, the hallways and entrances began to fill with the toxin and commuters fell about, gasping for air, blood gushing from their noses and mouths. The authorities acted quickly and began to transport victims to local St. Luke's International Hospital, a private 520-bed facility nearby. At approximately 8.28am that morning, the first patient affected by sarin gas arrived at the hospital, complaining of eye pain and blurred vision. They were joined 15 minutes later by an ambulance full of other victims, and within an hour, there were around 500 patients in the emergency department. There were some major issues with the way that the hospital dealt with the number of patients on the morning of the sarin gas attack. Mainly, the hectic chaos that was happening in the main entrance of the hospital prevented free access for other incoming patients. Even though the nerve gas was quickly determined to be the cause of the victim's symptoms, the decontamination process was quite slow to begin with because there wasn't enough space to shower or change for those who were literally sitting in their contaminated clothes. The lack of space and order also meant that when the victims were diagnosed and charted, there were simply too many people to keep detailed, thorough track of. Staff at the hospital had no choice but to ignore normal protocol and write down each victim's name, address, symptoms, treatment, and any other essential information on one continuous sheet of paper. This meant that some of the medical records were mishandled and lost, which meant that some of the victims didn't get the correct treatment and actually suffered much worse health conditions as a result. However, because the concentrate of sarin gas was actually quite diluted, there were very few victims who needed a respirator, and so the hospital was able to treat and save most of the victims. One of the main issues people faced following the attack was that many of those affected by the gas actually continued to go to work and only sought treatment once their symptoms progressed to the point where they could no longer continue in their day-to-day -day work lives. It's well known that Japanese work culture is quite different to other countries, with companies often contracting in overtime allowance of 20 to 40 hours, unpaid, quote, 
service overtime per month. Employees may work over 60 hours per week. The Japanese term karoshi, which when translated means, quote, overwork death, is used to talk about occupational sudden mortality. The most common medical causes of this kind of death are heart attacks or strokes due to a mixture of stress and a starvation diet. There were also 1,949 reported work-related suicides in Japan in 2019. Japanese work culture is very different to the UK, for example. Generally, Japanese companies are seen as families. Their workers genuinely want to improve the company by investing their time and energy into them. Many companies only promote employees who already work for them and therefore employees tend to stay with the same company for their entire lives. Due to this fierce loyalty and commitment, it's seen as unacceptable to miss a day of work, and calling in sick is never really an option. This may go some way to explain the tragic decisions some commuters made to continue on their journey and make their way to work, despite suffering from various symptoms after inhaling sarin. Only after the symptoms became so severe that they were unable to continue with work did they seek hospital treatment. As well as this, a number of the survivors returned to work before they had fully recovered due to the expectation of their colleagues and employers and, as a result, suffered further stresses and illnesses. Another issue associated with the after-effects of the sarin gas attack was how it affected the hospital staff. Even though the staff wore gloves and masks, the quality of their protective gear was not chemically resistant, and as a result, 14% experienced eye symptoms, 11% headaches, 8% throat pain, and 3% nausea. Immediately following the sarin gas attack, Alma was named as the group responsible and was listed as a terrorist organisation. The newly appointed governor of Tokyo launched a campaign where he promised to make the city safe again and that he would specifically work to crack down on the Alma, quote, supreme cult. He warned the public to be wary and set out on a manhunt for the leader of Alma and 11 of his most loyal and deadly followers. On the 16th of May 1995, a brown package addressed to the governor was delivered to his office in central Tokyo. The small package contained a device that exploded once opened, intending to wound and kill. The governor himself wasn't in his office at the time, but two of his colleagues were seriously wounded after opening the package for him. It was later revealed that Alma leader Shoko had ordered his followers to send the governor the bomb because of his interference with Alma's plans for increasingly violent kidnapping and killings. Shoko continued to lead the 40,000-strong group over the next few years. During this time, he changed his theory as to when the end of the world would be, claiming that it would be sometime between 1999 and 2003. 
a number of other suspected Alma incidents happened over the following few years, as well as a variety of copycat incidents. But, after 17 long years, 12 members of Alma, including the founder Shoko, had been located and arrested. On the 27th of February 2004, Shoko was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. After many unsuccessful appeals, Shoko's death sentence, along with six other Alma members, were all carried out on the 6th of July 2018. The remaining six Alma members on death row were executed 20 days later. Although Alma is still active today, it now operates under the name of Alefa, and it is unclear who or what the group follows. One question which I found very difficult to understand was how, at one point, the Alma group amassed around 40,000 followers. Some members have claimed that the following was actually around 75,000 at its peak. Members varied from highly trained university graduates to poorly educated to working-class youngsters. When recruiting these members, the Alma group were very aggressive in their recruitment techniques as well as intelligent in their process. They would run yoga classes, meditation and herbal healing sessions on university campuses to attract a diverse group of people to join them as well as recruiting through various high street stores, such as computer and noodle shops. Throughout the process, recruitees were given psychedelic drugs, along with being deprived of sleep and isolated away from other members. All of these are well-known techniques when it comes to brainwashing. The exact factors of brainwashing within Alma are unclear as there hasn't been much reporting or insider knowledge on that specifically. But we do know that before the mass killings, Alma was seen to the outside world as a fairly harmless yoga group with a number of people who like to practice meditation and enlightenment. Cults generally appear from the outside world as though they are quite normal. They rarely advertise themselves as a cult and by the time people realise what they're a part of, their entire lives have shifted and transformed into a commitment to the greater good, to the armour way of life, Shoko himself. It is close to impossible to get out of one once you're in. It's ironic then, that the deep questions that those members enter the group hoping so desperately to find answers to, are actually discouraged once you're a part of the group. That way, people can't talk, people can't leave, and people are forced to continue following and obeying, no matter what the consequences may be. Thank you so much to our first ever Patreons. We can't wait for you to hear all the bonus content coming your way over the next few months. Thank you, Sally, Jane, Amanda Fontaine, C.A. Caldwell, 
Katie Freya. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.